When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. The language is that of Mordor, which I will not utter here. Mordor? In the common tongue, it says, One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bite them. Indeed, we were bound in the darkness, Josh. Nine hours in the company of Gandalf, Frodo, and the gang as we made a return to Middle-earth for a revisit of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Of course, for some of us, it was a visit to Middle-earth. You, I believe. And I think it might have been a bit over nine hours. Yeah, technically. just a little bit. 2018 marks the 15th anniversary of the trilogy's concluding chapter, the best picture winning Return of the King. My review, entirely in the language of Mordor. Oh, I'm you, on board. You got that Middle Earth dictionary yep. after yep. all, didn't you? On this week's show, we'll have a sacred cow review of all three films, plus our top five scenes from the trilogy. It's an all Lord of the Rings extravaganza. Ashnaz thatukulak agburzumishikrumpatul. No, Adam, I won't carry you to the end of this episode. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Is this really happening, Josh? It's been 15 years since Peter Jackson's hugely ambitious and hugely successful Lord of the Rings trilogy reached its conclusion. Over $2 billion at the box office, 30 Oscar nominations, 17 wins, including Best Picture and Best Director for the final chapter, The Return of the King. Is that why we're devoting the entirety of this week's show to a discussion of the trilogy? It should be enough. It should be. think it would be enough, but you needed a little more motivation. Yes, and I got that in the form of next year's Film Spotting Madness, already planning. We know that at least one of these films is going to make the list best of the 2000s. And I had two blind spots here. I have only seen, up until now, I'd only seen The Fellowship of the Ring. Back in 2001, when it hit theaters, I needed to rectify that. So this is really more blind cow than sacred cow. We're mixing the sacred cow and blind spotting. You're going to get that consideration of the trilogy. And later in the show, we're going to share our top five scenes from Jackson's epic adaptation. I mentioned last week that I was going to need some help with the setup, mainly more about timing. I knew having watched over nine hours of this trilogy that I was going to have very little time or energy left over to craft something really brilliant, just break down these three films and give you the perfect framing question. I needed listeners to help, and they came through, as they always do. They're, they're my Samwise Gamgee. See, Josh, I can play this game. Mm-hmm. So we heard so from good. longtime listener Eric 
Roke in Miami. He says, I'm browsing Letterboxd and I noticed that Josh is reviewing the Lord of the Rings films and he mentions that you will be reconsidering those movies in the next episode. As a huge fan, this understandably got me excited and not for wholly unselfish reasons. You may not remember, but years ago there was an episode where Adam and Sam, our current producer, former co-host Sam Van Halgren, discussed the top five movie sidekicks. Sam's done a little bit of editing here to this, Josh. Sam included Redacted from Redacted on his list, and neither had Sean Astin's Samwise Gamgee. Is he, a, he must oh, he's be a that embarrassed. embarrassed. Yeah, okay. I'm going to have to hide that top five list from the archive. Don't you do it. Nope. He, he swore me. <laughs> I'm looking right now. <laughs> well, just don't share it. <laughs> I shot off an email bemoaning this fact and demanding that the list be rechristened the Samwise Gamgee Memorial List. I was excited when I had my email read on the show, but was nonetheless mocked for the suggestion. See, Josh, you were missed in the early days of film spotting. Eric needed an ally. He didn't have one at the time. We fast forward to now, and here I am, still a loyal listener. I couldn't help but notice during Film Spotting Madness that Redacted was conspicuously absent from the bracket, and yet it is already known that one of the Lord of the Rings films will be represented next year. I call that vindication. No one remembers Redacted, but Samwise lives on. I await the on-air apology. Kidding aside, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on the films. I already see that Josh really enjoyed the first two, and I also know that Adam will be watching Two Towers and Return of the King for the first time. If I were a betting man, I would predict that Adam will be less enthusiastic about each successive entry in the trilogy. They focus more on action and spectacle and seem to have less character moments and world-building than Fellowship. That's the criticism I hear the most. While I think Gollum is an exception to that argument, I do think it is somewhat fair, and that is why Fellowship should be the movie representing the trilogy in Film Spotting Madness 2019. I would argue, however, that this trilogy is unique. It's really one long film. And that isn't just a marketing gimmick. They were filmed as one movie, and the script was written with this in mind. Two Towers and Return of the King pick up right where its predecessor left off, and the year in between releases were akin to a long intermission, and Eric is certainly right on all those counts. So I would argue that all the important character work for parts two and three are there in part one, since they are, in a sense, the same film. Likewise, the off-maligned multiple endings of Return of the King are somewhat justified because they are wrapping up a 9.5-hour epic, not just that third movie, but maybe Adam will say he liked all three. I eagerly await. We're going to find out how much I enjoyed or didn't enjoy these films in a moment, but a little bit more listener feedback here. First of all, I think Sam already got to the archives because I don't see it here. You can't find no, it? No, and I'm, I'm even on the old site. And you can't find it? No. Wow, yeah, Sam, he, works he was that embarrassed he had to get rid of it. Peterson Hill in Atlanta sent us this. Hello, Film Spotting. This is Peterson Hill calling in from Atlanta, Georgia to share my thoughts on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's a series of films that I enjoy and appreciate, but I probably don't love as much as some other people. But I do think I understand why they're so culturally relevant. I think it's down to the heart that Fellowship of the Ring premiered just after September 11th when our country was really suffering through an identity crisis and a loss of faith, a loss of hope. And Peter Jackson's film comes along with a sense of moral directness and moral certitude that really registered with audiences then. And now here we are 17 years later, and our country's asking the same questions again, maybe amplified at this point. And there's a sense of chaos that we can't control anymore. When Peter Jackson's film states that the smallest of things can make the biggest of differences, I think that people really latched onto that. And so now the question becomes, will these films age so well because of that moral directness and that moral certitude, or will they fall by the wayside at some point? I think they're going to age well, but I'd love to hear what your guys' thoughts are. 
Thank you, Peterson, for that. If you were a betting man, Josh, would you also guess that I got less enthusiastic about each successive entry? And how do you rank them? But more importantly, what is it about these movies that so connects and resonates with you personally, but with so many others? Is Peterson right that it has something to do with an appetite, a desperation perhaps for moral clarity post 9-11 and today? Or is it in fact the timelessness of Tolkien's original material, the universality of its themes, and Jackson's sweeping, skillful rendering of the spectacle that somehow manages to still often feel small, intimate even? So, yes, my expectation is you did grow weary as the series went on, though I also, trying to watch it this time, partly through your eyes, think that there's a lot here that probably did resonate with you, and and hopefully we'll get to that. That's my expectation, though. In terms of ranking, I think these are very even, uh, partly for the reasons we've heard, the way they were envisioned, the, the level of control exhibited by all the filmmakers. So ranking for me is kind of a ridiculous exercise. I'll say this. Indulge me. When they first came out, I had put Two Towers as my least favorite of the three. Mm -hmm. Again, I think all three of them might have made my top 10 lists of those years. So, you know, this is quibbling. Uh, This watch... I'd switch that with Return of the King. I think um, – and it wasn't a matter of weariness for me, just some other issues, including that ending that was mentioned that maybe we can get to as well. For the larger question, why does this resonate? I do think Peterson is on to something. I think you could attribute it to the particular timing. But really the themes explored here and these ideas of good versus evil are timeless, right? This is going to be stuff that – the the Greek myths were interested in that, you know, Homer was interested. I mean, th- this is stuff that does not go away. It's what mm-hmm. we live with. It's who we are. I'd also argue it resonates because it's not quite as simple as that. And one of the most compelling undercurrents is this idea of temptation and evil being within and the mm-hmm. same figure being capable of great good and awfulness. I think you know, that's one thing that the Star Wars films aren't given enough credit for, even though that's the heart of them with the sure. figure of Darth Vader. So there are very similar reasons why these movies hold a wide appeal for people, not only in that particular time, but going forward. I would argue that the quality of them is why they will hold up as well. It's not just that they have these universal timeless themes, but that they're told so expertly Yes, there are moments where you could tell these films are 15 to 18 years old now, but I don't think those were glaring examples. You mean mainly the, the special effects? The, yeah, you know, special effects yeah. or, or even tone or things that – and that varies, right? Where what will register in one era as camp will register in another era as earnestness. Um, I think these, again, because they chose to go earnest with this material, I think that allows them to hold up a little bit better than if they winked at it more. Um, but we'll, we'll see what you thought. I am very curious to hear, you know, knowing that you did like fellowship. Yeah, I did. But it came out in 2001. Had your fill at that point, it seems. Otherwise well, you would have gotten to these other movies, right? Hobbit movies, or at least the Hobbit. Cause I don't think I ever watched yeah, the second one. That didn't you, help encourage Did not encourage me. you to go back to them. But now that you have, yeah. what'd you think? How am I supposed to let go? For years, I've carried the burden of being the dull, unimaginative one, the Lord of the Rings hater. I wore it so long, Josh, I I came to embrace it. It became part of my identity, forever parroting my patron saint, Clerks Randall Graves. There's only one return, okay, and it ain't of the king, it's of the Jedi. Three movies of people walking to an effing volcano. That's been my mantra now for 
10 plus years. And what am I supposed to do now? Just forsake those jokes like Denethor rebuking Faramir? I'm not ready, Josh. Good scene, huh? (laughs) I'm not ready for it. But I liked all three of these movies. Yeah, they're good. I liked all three of them quite a bit. Might we say they're great? They're close. Yeah. Yeah, they're certainly close, if not great. And for the record, I threw out on Twitter just about 48 hours ago at this point, which Lord of the Rings movie is the best. And I was kind of surprised. Maybe I put too much stock in Return of the King being the Oscar winning one. And I do think that's a case. And someone commented on this, but I think it's probably attributable to it being the culminating film. Absolutely. So it was an achievement. It was a crowning of all three of the films in the trilogy versus that one. It was like a career honoring Oscar for a set of movies. But I thought, for whatever reason, I had it in my head that that was the one all movie geeks or Lord of the Rings geeks pointed to as the best one. And at least among our listeners on Twitter, 45% had Fellowship. Then they went next to 31%, The Two Towers, and 24% said Return of the King. Okay. One of the real thrills for me watching these films, so few of the movies we get to watch here on the show, I can actually watch with my kids. And I was able to watch this with my three boys. Sophie didn't really care. Sophie, and listeners may remember this, it was a while back. She was only seven or eight. And I don't even remember what segment of the show I shared this in, but just proving that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, she had to write an analysis of The Hobbit. And at conference time, her teacher shared that with us. And she she was even more cynical and upbraiding than Randall from Clerks 2 was. So she wasn't on board. But I'm like, I'm going to watch this with the three boys and we'll see if Connor, the youngest, who's seven, about to be eight, if he is into it. Because he's usually into anything that the two older boys are into. Sure. He lasted about 45 minutes with Fellowship, and he'd pop in and out through other films, but I just think it was too much for him, a little bit overwhelming. Quinn and Holden, though, really also enjoyed these films. And Quinn finally fell asleep one night as Return was finishing. He was going to do it on his own the next day. So Holden and I finished that film. We finished the trilogy, and I said, okay, how do you rank them? Which one was your favorite? And he said, well, it would have to be not best to worst, but best to least best. I said, okay, fair enough, because obviously he was also into them. I think that's how I think about it. He went The Two Towers, Return of the King, and Fellowship Last. And guess what? I agree with him. Okay. Yeah, that's also how I would rank the three films. Fellowship for me, I think, is obviously more exposition. It's more introduction. As much as I love Kate Blanchett's voice, and I know this is probably heresy, part of me really thinks the opening might have been a little bit more intriguing and successful overall if that prologue actually didn't have that voice and all of that talking and all of the backstory made it made it clear to us by seeing that play out by seeing Ilsidor is that the the king look at you I think it's Ilsidor right wow. and, and seeing that whole thing play out with Sauron I don't know that we needed the narration to tell us what was going on as much I think there probably would have been a way for it to be clear enough but also still a little bit mysterious something we really thought about and haunted us as we watched the rest of the film I'll I jump do, in, I do recognize completely the challenge of that yeah right of the and material I'll, and information they have to wade through and I that's one th- question I had because I'm often critical of mythologies right when when movies begin with these yes. ornate mythologies that make me just kind of slump in my seat and I thought maybe that's something I've just gotten sick of and is that gonna is it gonna strike me this way when I go back, in its defense, well, number one, it's drawing directly from a source material novel. So there's a richness there that it's drawing from. But also, and this is one of the things I thought might appeal to you, Mm -hmm. this is very much a story about storytelling. Yes. And so that 
through line, starting it that way made sense, mm. particularly for this tale. For yeah, me. no, I can see that. I think as well, there is a certain redundancy for me in the journey where they just are consistently stepping out of one really terrible situation that they somehow managed to survive and they get a little bit of a respite and then they're back into another very similar type of terrible situation and fellowship, I guess. And I like the film quite a bit. I think though, the reason I put it just behind the others is the way it handles that storytelling and the structure. And I guess the efficiency of it, for lack of a better word, towers really was for me a little bit more satisfying, I think, in how skillfully we cross cut between the different quests. We have Frodo and Sam, obviously, on their separate journey. I do note, however, that we go a long period of time, about halfway through, where we don't see Frodo and Sam for a while. So that and, was that goes to my original ranking yeah. when I reviewed these, which I don't feel as strongly about, but I basically knocked it down because I wanted more Frodo. Yeah, and I, and I think I actually... I like Aragorn and the other characters more than Frodo, so that didn't really bother me as much. From just a narrative structure standpoint, it did stick out to me and distracted me a little bit. But I think up until that point, until I really started to notice their absence, I actually really loved the way it was cutting between those stories. Not only Frodo and Sam, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, but also Merry and Pippin. We get Gandalf's return, which is, of course, wonderful. The new characters we meet, I really enjoyed. Theoden, Faramir, and especially... Eowyn, who Miranda Otto is just wonderful, and we'll probably talk more about her, if not during this segment, when we get to our top five. Yes, there are skirmishes along the way, but rather than following that exact type of structure, it all builds to that big battle at Helm's Deep. So for me, I think that's why I rank Two Towers just a little bit higher. Fair to say, of the three, it's the most Shakespearean or has the yeah. most Shakespearean echoes, mm-hmm. you know, the burden of kings yep. and some and of the those language king plays, there. The history plays are my yeah, favorite Yeah, exactly. So, so I did, yeah. if I had to guess, I would have guessed Two Towers would be the one that won you over. So that's, that's good to hear. So yeah, I did, you know, I, I watched this. I don't normally do this. I wait till we get together and, you know, find out what you thought. But mm-hmm. I did watch these again thinking now that I know you fairly well, I yeah. wonder how this is going over. And it's it's like, you know, the Ents, the walking tree guards. I thought, oh, boy. Oh, I'm, boy. I don't know about I'm that. I'm conflicted. We, we, and we don't have to get into the Ents. But there were moments where I was like really like, Ugh. My kids love the Ents, okay. though. I, yeah. I lo- yeah. So general rule, I, and this has to do with the special effects, they don't hold up well whenever a human is riding something. That, For the most part, yes. That's, that's almost and, universally true. And yeah. the Ents, if you just look at them, are intricately designed and really quite beautiful and spooky. But whenever Mary and Pippin are riding on Treebeard's no. shoulder, no, you're right. it's, it, it loses stands something. Out. So anyways, I was, I was thinking about, you know, how's Adam taking this? And, and I didn't want it to be, as you said, like the unimaginative guy who's... But but I do <laughs> think it's, it's revealing of... What we're looking for when we go to movies and what stimulates us. Mm-hmm. And it, it struck me that, you know, why might fantasy in general not be your bag? Though It's great to hear that, that you know, you did appreciate these. It might come down to the fact that, you know, some of us go to the movies to have our intellect tickled. Mm-hmm. Some of us go to the movies to have our imaginations ignited. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a matter of what is the better art, right? It, it, it's more of how we're wired and what sort of art resonates with us. So maybe fantasy at a certain point doesn't do it for you. I think this is maybe why I have my limitations with Steven Soderbergh because he's first and foremost intellectualizing yeah, cinema, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. and 
its genres, its its forms, and at a certain point, you know that that becomes a little boring for me. So sure. some of that's different. That's strokes. a good distinction between us. Yeah, yeah I think fair. that's fair. And so it's again, these lines aren't hard and fast. I don't mean to suggest here that Lord of the Rings is bereft of ideas. I think there's a lot here about power and temptation and that sort of stuff. I just think that above all, it stimulates the imagination. And when you take these all together, this is the first time I've I've really done something like this. I remember back when I was with the Naperville Sun, uh, a colleague convinced me to to try this in might have been one day. I don't remember if we made it through all of them. This would have been not long after they all came out. But this is the first time in a long time I've sat down and watched them closely together. And I think taken together, they really are a masterpiece of the fantasy art form. And if your brain is wired that way and imagination is what you want to experience, um, these are just really going to work for you. Mm-hmm. I came across, looking looking at my old reviews of these, I came across this quote from Fellowship. This is Tolkien describing a character listening to elves sing. Almost it seemed that the words took shape and visions of far lands and bright things that he had never yet imagined open out before him. And I think that's what Lord of the Rings, they do that for me beautifully in particularly cinematic ways. You know, things that I experienced reading those books as a kid, Mm -hmm. now it's happening for me again cinematically. And so it was, you know, as much a relief to hear that you appreciated them, a relief for me to find out that they do still hold up. Yeah. Because I love these when they came out. You know, this question that we started with about the universality or the timelessness of them, this is something that's come up recently, I know, on a few lists I've done. And even going back to my review or our discussion of Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, I remember talking about how it's very easy for us to look at any time period in American history. We tend to glorify maybe the loss of innocence of Watergate. We talk about the era we're living in right now. But really, when you think about it, every decade has its crisis. Every decade has its own version of conflict where I'm sure the people living through it felt like it was the end of the world, so to speak. And I do think, of course, you can make a case that the time we're in right now is maybe just a little bit up a notch, just a little bit crazier. But that said, I think we are always, to some extent, going through strife and turmoil, and these conflicts are cyclical. And I have not read anything about these movies at all or read anything about the books. I really know nothing about the lore. I know that they were published all together in 1954, 1955, over that period. And you think about these movies coming. I was thinking about that as I was watching them and thinking about them coming on the heels of World War II, where you've got the world torn apart. You have these warring nations. And then the story comes along and says, this is a time for healing and unity and the dominion of men being a good thing after all of this turmoil and destruction. And I have to imagine that was a fairly comforting thing for people who were reading it, even if it wasn't totally conscious. And I think every generation is going to connect with that idea on some level. But Every generation is also going to see themselves in Frodo. There are always going to be hordes of readers who think of themselves as small and insignificant and who have these inner conflicts and they want to be or at least want to have friends with the strength and the courage of Aragorn and Legolas. And they want to have friends who are as loyal to them as Sam and Mary and Pip are. And wouldn't we all love to have the wise old figure with the staff to guide us who seemingly has all the answers and knows the way. So I think that's always going to connect with people. And I'm watching it as well, thinking about World War II, and then I'm thinking about the end of the trilogy, the culmination. We can talk about that a little bit. I saw your letterboxed 
comment. So I know you have some issues, and Eric touched on that with how Return of the King ends or ends multiple times. And we are going to spoil this. If this isn't clear by now, we're going to consider these films in their totality. But they return to the Shire, and the four hobbits are sitting at the pub. And they all just share looks. We get those those glances, the cuts to the close-ups. They don't say anything. They finally do cheers with their mugs, but otherwise they don't say anything. And you realize that in that moment, they're almost not there. Life is going on around them. It went on without them there in the Shire. They're present in a way, but everything has changed inside them because of this crucible, of this journey that they have gone through. And I'm watching it thinking of Vietnam veterans. I'm thinking of these people coming home from battle, scarred. They don't get a hero's welcome. They don't get the hero's welcome when they come back to the Shire. They have sort of that thousand-yard stare sitting there drinking their beer, and they're thinking, where do we go from here? And I really loved the melancholy of that ending. Yes. That, that really did surprise me. And I've thought about it a little bit since seeing your post. No doubt that as I watched the movie— I felt like the movie had ended three times. But as I reflect on the movie and I reflect on how much I really like Return of the King, I don't know how they would have done it differently. It would have felt false on one level for it to end with the coronation as much as that does feel like a finale and it's a wonderful moment. And then them getting back to the Shire adds this other element, this kind of melancholic note that I just talked about. And then even from there, I think we'll get into it a little bit more, but that that coda finally with them heading off and leaving Mary and Pippin and Samwise back at the Shire, I think that adds its own other layer of depth and emotion that we really did need. I, I don't know how you would have ended it any other way than it ultimately did. Yeah, and, and to be clear, it's not that I think what the way they did it is ruinous or anything. I just felt the refusal to conclude more fully this time, mm-hmm. and it's part of what you talked about. I do think the perfect ending was in the Shire. I love that it returns there. My recollection from the book is that is where it does eventually return to. And that note, there's a strong thread of PTSD, we would name it now and maybe wouldn't have in the early 2000s, throughout these films. The recognition of the cost of all of this battling. It's, it's, for all the battle scenes, I don't think you could call it a warmongering film. People might debate me on that. There are, there's certainly elements, uh, Legolas and Gimli counting their kills. Yes. Really hits a bad note because it's at odds with this otherwise recognition of the cost of all this violence. Though, let me jump in real quick and say that one of the things that Tolkien managed to pull off, and so then Peter Jackson is the beneficiary of it, is unlike so many war movies, where even if we as viewers feel like they're killing the quote-unquote enemy, and we think that the, the cause is righteous, we're hyper aware, I think most of us are anyway, of the cost of those lives. And there is a lack of moral clarity in pretty much any war movie we can think of. There's no lack of moral clarity here. They're killing orcs. They're killing these creatures that were that were bred. They're not even they're not human. They're they're nothing. They're they're these creatures bred to be monsters to kill. So they get around that. Well, yeah. So that's an out. But the attitude with which they do it, I think counting kills is at odds with the otherwise recognition of loss that these movies have. But but getting back to the endings, um, I just think that Shire moment was so nice because it, it did end on that note of melancholy. There was also the note of Frodo, again, going back to this being about mm-hmm. storytelling, adding to Bilbo's tale with his book. And for me, it could have ended there. It would have been perfectly that they went forward beyond that is fine. There's nothing terrible about those sure. moments. I just do. You feel that sort of like lurching. I agree completely. But 
intellectualizing it later, the other sure. thing that occurred to me is that maybe the most universal aspect of this film, ultimately, the the broadest thing you could say about this film, of course, is that it is about identity. All these characters realizing their destiny or it occurred to me, Josh, honestly, to put it more simply, they're growing up. And you've got at the end of this film with that coda, you've got the wizard and the elves and a couple of the hobbits saying, you know what? I'm saying goodbye to this world of men. These fantasy characters are taking off on the boat and they're leaving the men now to rule and, and rule themselves and live hopefully in harmony. And we have Aragorn. I'm thinking about how he's accepting the throne and in the process, a wife. And we know they're going to have a future son and heir. And even with Sam going back at the very end of the movie, he's accepted adulthood. He has the wife and the kids. He, too, has grown up. And it's, it's ironic that if Tolkien's goal was to create this rich, expansive world in the hope that we'd traverse through it with these characters and come out the other side thinking it's now time to put aside childish things. Well, he failed, obviously, right? Because everyone's just latched onto this mythology and it's captured the imagination of, of so many kids and so many adults who don't let it go. And I swear, as I was taking all these notes today, I put it aside for a little bit and then I wanted to clarify something about how the movie ended and I did a Google search and I found a quote from the end of the book from Tolkien. And this is what Frodo says to Sam and the other hobbits at the end of the film. And as I recall, this isn't in the movie. He says, you must settle the Shire's affairs yourselves. That is what you have been trained for. Do you not yet understand? My time is over. It is no longer my task to set things right, nor to help folk to do so. And as for you, my dear friends, you will need no help. You are grown up now, grown indeed very high among the great you are, and I have no longer any fear at all for any of you. So that goes back to everything that I was already tapping into about the ending of that film in terms of this idea of of growing up. And that goes back to the storytelling element too, Josh, where he has written the book. In that coda, we get then the book being handed over to Sam. He, he wrote the book and literally closes the book on this fantasy chapter of their lives and says, you know what, now it's time for us to move on. So this whole idea of these books somehow being about this ushering into adulthood. And of course, what's really universal about that is none of us want to go. <laughs> None of us want to be ushered into adulthood. Right. And, I, you know, so what's being referred to there is growth, maybe not so much of age, but of experience yes. and of understanding. And I think, you know, I'm not an expert in it, but, but Tolkien wrote about myths and wrote a famous essay on fairy stories. And there, from what I remember, he talked mostly about using these fantastic situations to bring out deeper truths that then you can carry with you in your mundane life. Exactly. So so that's, you know, yes, people, you know, latch onto these and in a way are revisiting their childhood. But I, but I also think it goes back to what I initially said about igniting their imagination. Mm -hmm. And then you're also igniting through that a moral imagination. Yes. And those two things, those two things can be intertwined and lived out as an adult at, at its best. And, and this is somewhat related. One thing I, I really wanted to talk about is this idea. It struck me during the two towers in particular, this idea of the ring itself that's driving all of mm -hmm. this as you could say, on the one hand, it's just a moral MacGuffin, right? That it's this thing of temptation. And how many times have we talked about, especially in these Marvel movies, that there's always a MacGuffin, something at the center of it just to drive the action. 
But the ring in this, these films, it's more than that. It's more than just a symbol for things. It's, it's really a character. And there are very cinematic ways that Jackson and his collaborators make that little thing a character. When you think about when we first see it, um, it has its own theme music yeah. by Howard Shore. Okay, So like a, a superhero gets a theme. Here the ring gets a theme. The cinematography, there's that moment where it... it reflects a shard of light across Frodo's face, so it has a, a presence beyond itself. The great sound effects of when it's dropped on the ground, mm-hmm. it's this heavy thud as if it you know, had dropped Thor's hammer. And then when Frodo puts it on and he disappears and, and we get these, when we see him, the background is blurry. It's like this smeared Renaissance right. painting, but he's kind of in focus. I mean, all of this, uh, of course, backs up the idea of... Um, I guess the thematic weight that the ring does have as well. It's this character around which all these thoughts about power and corruption, temptation, uh, addiction even, it struck me. Mm -hmm. And and we'll get to Gollum eventually, I'm sure, uh, as a figure of addiction in many ways, um, that this little thing is really at the center of it all and not just as a plot device. No. No, you're absolutely right. And I do have more to say about The Ring and how we recognize through some of the choices Jackson makes and the actors make. We really do understand the full weight and impact of it. But that's going to we'll be part that. of my okay, top yeah, five. We might so, have to save yeah, I, I've for got the a lot five. more I could say about this movie, but it's all going to come up when we get to our favorite scenes from the trilogy. So what else What else okay. do we need to dissect at this point? The other thing I wanted to make a point of that I didn't find a place for in my top five, but we can save it if it's in yours, is that – these really function as horror films. And I think, you know, Peter Jackson, yes, he made Heavenly Creatures. I think that was his kind of art house breakout. But he got attention earlier than that for Dead Alive. And then right before The Lord of the Rings, he made the Michael J. Fox horror comedy, The Frighteners. I actually interviewed Jackson at a haunted Chicago bar for that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Why am I just learning this now? Not a great film, um, but an interesting one and certainly has horror elements. And think about all of the pieces here that are just pushed over into the horror arena. The makeup design, absolutely. The goriness that these orcs and other creatures are given. They're really awful and frightening. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Kate Blanchett. When she, when her elf queen here, I'm going to get myself into trouble, but at one point she imagines having the ring herself. Yes. And she turns into this ghostly possessed specter. I mean, that's terrifying. But then she says she passed the test. And I'll be honest, that's still the moment that on first viewing, I don't know totally how to process. What do you mean? What exactly I'm supposed to glean from that? What what test she passed? She she did have she that moment, the, but she didn't take it. She had the power to take yeah. it from Frodo. She managed to she hold didn't. back there. Yeah, she managed but, to hold back But she back still there. let that beast right. out. Yeah. And and that's a scary, scary no, beast. No, it is. The, the Eye of Sauron, this recurring image, is nothing short of demonic. And even little touches like when they're walking through the bog, Frodo and Sam and Gollum, and those faces of the mm-hmm. corpses under the water – I mean, you could go on and on. The Ghost Kings of Return of the King. I'm I know get to one of these the, moments. Yeah. The Ghost Kings, not you know, kind of a, a, a not a favorite element of many fans. They are reminiscent of some of the effects in the Frighteners, though. I mean, really, if there's an auteurist case to be made for Lord of the Rings, I think it's looking at these horror elements that are clearly part of Jackson's sure. stamp. Okay. One more thing to talk about. Um, I'm sure this is in terms of the acting overall. I'm sure we're going to give time to Ian McKellen when we get to our top five as Gandalf. But I want to make sure that we also talk about Bernard Hill 
as Theoden, the king of the horse riders of Rohan. What a great character arc he gets as maybe like, what, the 20th person introduced in this saga, but still he goes from this possessed king, more horror there, to kind of a reluctant warrior to eventually this valiant rescuer. We get an exorcism. And yeah, no kidding. And as far as the Shakespearean stuff goes, Hill could probably make any line sound Shakespearean. Right. But I think here he's given some really poetic stuff. I don't know if this comes from Tolkien or if it's from the screenwriters. And at least on Two Towers, there were four of them, Jackson, Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and then Stephen Sinclair. But there are, of course, those two famous speeches he gives at Helm's Deep. How did it come to this? And then later, Mm -hmm. so it begins. But I really like that eulogy he has for his son where he's mourning the loss of his child and also this curtain coming down on his kingdom. Symbol Muna. Ever has it grown on the tombs of my forebears. Now it shall cover the grave of my son. Alas, that these evil days should be mine. The young perish and the old linger. That I should live to see the last days of my house. Sedra's death was not of your making. No parents should have to bury their child. I think that's another instance of, you know, the movie pausing when it really doesn't have much time to spare for a significant scene of grief and loss. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think there's a bad performance in this series. Maybe you disagree. No, I I don't. I don't feel that way. I agree with you. I think they are all good. And in fact, we will talk about, it's funny, the last three things you've talked about in terms of the horror aspect, the ring itself, and the performances and the stature of some of these actors and the complexity they bring to the characters, it's all going to unify in one of my top five choices. So we will get to more of that. But I love I love Bernard Hill here. I agree with you. I considered his exorcism scene actually as one of my favorite scenes overall in the trilogy. And I mention complexity. I love the fact that we are never quite on firm ground with him in terms of we trust that he is a noble man. Other people seem to think he's a noble man, but he's fighting some of the same issues of jealousy that other characters are in terms of Aragorn and the stature and the status that he might have. And he's got some negative feelings about some of these other kingdoms and rightfully so. So you want him to make a certain decision. Gandalf is urging him to make a certain decision. He is maybe ambivalent. You understand though, what's driving that and you do feel for his position. So that's where some of that, that Shakespearean stuff comes through as well with his character. I think we are going to go ahead and stop there because We're going to get to our top five moments here in a little bit. We want to close with this, another voicemail from a listener, Chris Massa. We hear from him frequently during Film Spotting Badness, and appropriately, he wants to help transition this discussion into the eventual tournament that will happen next year. Hello, Film Spotting. This is Chris Massa calling from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with your Massa Minute. Well, Adam, I'm kind of proud of you for taking the plunge and watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I hope you like it. I know I really do. I don't think they're all-time greats or anything like that, but I do think they deserve to be in Film Spotting Madness. I mean, they're they're well-made, they're ambitious as heck. They deserve to be in the mix. Will they win? I don't think so, and I don't think they should, but still, they should be there. However, and this is a big but, I would argue that they should be considered one entry, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, rather than three individual films. And here's why. 
not only is this a case where the the total is greater than the sum of its parts, but unlike nearly every other series of films I can think of, the chapters that make up the Lord of the Rings trilogy do not stand on their own, and they're not intended to. This isn't a series of three movies that tell like interlocking stories or anything like that, and it's not an original with two sequels that, that build on it. It is one story told in long form, uh, more like a miniseries, basically. And if you pull any of these movies out of the trilogy, you have something that's missing an end, or a beginning, or both. It's only when it's taken as a whole that the individual pieces make sense, and that the whole makes sense. And I think that's exactly how it should be. So, there you go. The Lord of the Rings should be considered one movie, not three. Talk amongst yourselves. Thank you, Chris, for that. And, of course, we have a lot of time to wrangle over this. Sam and I may actually have to include you in this conversation. (laughs) I think that our initial plan was to just make it a play-in vote. We were going to make the listeners decide which of the three movies, because it doesn't seem totally fair to any of the other films to do what the Oscars may have done and consider them in their totality. That said, he's absolutely right. Eric was right before. Unlike so many other trilogies, this is one film. It's one film with a year-long intermission between them. Chris's logic is sound, but what he's forgetting is that Film Spotty Madness is all about pain. And so I like the idea of forcing people in a three-way play-in. Is that what you were talking about? That's it, yeah. A three-way play-in to actually – I mean, maybe we got a little hint of how it would come out based on the Twitter poll you put out there. But you never know. No. Especially if people go back and revisit these over the next year. So let's make them fight it out. I love it. All right, from one massive franchise to another, the film spotting poll is up next with a question inspired by Solo, a Star Wars story. Stay with us. assume then that the the rest of your bodily functions are normal sorry beg your pardon well putting it delicately mm-hmm. do you eat uh, yes uh, yes I do when I'm hungry you do of course you do. <laughs> the late Margot Kidder with Christopher Reeve in 1978's Superman. She passed away earlier this week at the age of 69. And as I recall, I wasn't here for that show, but you recently, not too long ago, did your top five women comic book characters done right. That list from August 2016. You had Margot Kidder's Lois Lane at number one. Tell us what Kidder and what Superman overall got right with her character. Indeed, I did. That was a show that Angelica Bastian said in your place for a fun one to do. Yeah, I mean, maybe I talked a little bit about this on that show, but two years, long time ago, the memory's fading. I realized that Kidder and Superman and probably I would group her with Karen Allen in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Carrie Fisher in Star Wars and the first three Star Wars films really helping me as a young boy to understand that the damsels don't always have to be in distress, basically. And not that there weren't scenes like that. I think especially you could point to some in Superman where Kidder is put in that position. 
But the way she plays it and the spark of independence that she brings even to those scenes just stood out so much that it kind of reformulated what those characters yeah. could be, what what the good characters should be, really. So even the great helicopter scene, yeah, I've got exactly. you. Who's got you? The the fact that she she can be funny in that there moment. you go. Yeah. Yep. So she was yeah. Kidder was really something. Yeah, and we also lost this past week novelist and journalist Tom Wolf. He was eighty eight years old. I mentioned him just because the right stuff has come up a few times here fairly recently on the show. That 1983 movie, he wrote the 1979 book, also known, of course, for the 1968 electric Kool-Aid acid test, The Bonfire of the Vanities in 1987, which infamously Brian De Palma later adapted, and more recently, 1998's A Man in Full. He also wrote a collection of stories I always have to get in any mention of my alma mater when I can. He had a collection called Hooking Up, and I believe it opens with a story about Grant Gale and Grinnell College, of all places. How about so that? Tom Wolfe, the illustrious Tom Wolfe, even wrote about Grinnell. Bonfire of the Vanities, I remember being, I, I would have been middle school at the time, but one of those books where I felt like, oh, I, I'm reading a grown-up book. Sure. <laughs> yeah, that was the first <laughs> of his that I ever read. Next week here on the show, we are planning to review Solo, a Star Wars story. At this point, I have not seen it. Josh Larson has seen it. And I think that's all we should say. I don't think we okay. need to hear. We can get into it. Hear your initial thoughts. And we don't need you bringing us down. No, 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 no. <laughs> See, already it's started. Okay. <laughs> this is the sort yep. of movie, if you have any quibbles about, you're going to be lumped in the hated category. And, mm-hmm. th- and that's kind of frustrating. But let's just say there's an issue and it's kind of an important one. And we'll talk about it next well, week. Well, I refuse to believe that it has anything to do with the acting talents of Alden Ehrenreich. I wouldn't have thought so either. How dare you? Also on that show, we will share our interview with Paul Schrader. Yes, the Paul Schrader, probably best known as the screenwriter behind some of Martin Scorsese's best films, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ, Bringing Out the Dead. He also wrote and directed Affliction, American Gigolo, Blue Collar, and others. His latest is First Reformed with Ethan Hawke as a church pastor in upstate New York. And maybe that's all we need to say about it at this point, other than we have both seen the film. We both do recommend the film. Absolutely. And we both talked with Schrader, I think the first time in the show's history that we both conducted an interview, but a really interesting conversation with Mr. Schrader, who not only, of course, can talk intelligently about really any subject, certainly movies, and certainly movies like the one he made and that he wrote the book on, Transcendental Films, movies that are in that transcendental style that will probably mean more to listeners who have read some of that book where he focuses on the work of Ozu and Dreyer and Brisson, or if you have heard certain marathons over the years here on the show, like our Brisson Marathon, I'll just say, if you're going into First Reform, you don't need to do this. You absolutely can just take it on its own. But if you watch Brisson's Diary of a Country Priest and you watch Bergman's Winter Light in particular, you will definitely have the spiritual and aesthetic foundation you would need more than you would ever need to consider First Reformed. Yeah, and you be- should. Better yet, even maybe go see First Reformed and, and then see them. Then watch those. Yeah, for sure. I like it. Like the way I like to do the books before the movies. Well, the books after the movies, that I- is. I'm not going to get on board with that, but in this <laughs> case, for these films. All right. Speaking of interviews coming later this summer, I did want to mention 
that you'll hear my conversation with Bo Burnham, the comedian who last week on the show, I believe, I was singing the praises of his stand-up series, Make Happy, on Netflix. And he's got his debut as a writer-director, Eighth Grade, that's gotten a ton of buzz on the festival circuit, including this year's Sundance Film Festival. It was the closing night film of the Chicago Critics Film Festival. It went on to win the Audience Choice Award for that fest. Hitting theaters July 13th, I think opening here in Chicago July 20th. So around that time, you will hear my conversation with him, one that I enjoyed as much as I've enjoyed any interview with a filmmaker or artist here on the show. So I'm excited to share that with you. I only lament that I can't share it for another two months. In case you missed last week's Gasping Adam and the Accents edition of Massacre Theater, we did want to give you a taste of what you missed. Here it is. What's his name? Uh, uh, Junior, till we think of a better one. Well, why don't you call him Jason? I just love biblical names. If I had another little boy, I would name him Jason Caleb or Tab. <gasps> oh, he's an angel. You know, I mentioned that Sam put me up to that. Mm-hmm. Sam was the director who cast me in that role, and then... I got no feedback. Well, I was just going to ask. I got nothing. So I don't know. I don't know how to read into that. The fact that he didn't comment, does that mean I nailed it? No, no. Or it's not good. It's not good? No. Yeah, I think I we mean, know Sam well I, enough I usually, I usually get notes after every one of my Massacre Theater performances. So, right. And they're always all positive. So I don't think you're in a good place. Well, if I have any doubt what I should be reading into that... I'll know for sure when we go, I don't know, another six months or so, and he never suggests I get one of the funny voices. <laughs> that will reveal his mistake. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You do still have a little bit of time to enter. The deadline is Monday, May 21st. As always, the winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced next week. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. Choto! Kinichiro! Dozo! Moto Penekeku. Moto Penekeku. Moto Penekeku. Hi. 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 Pancakes aren't quite as good as my mother's, but what I really go for here is the respect. I love pancakes, and I love that pancake scene from Inherent Vice. Maybe my favorite scene in that wonderful, to me, Paul Thomas Anderson film, featuring two really wonderful performances from Joaquin Phoenix and Josh Brolin there as Bigfoot Bjornsson. His funniest movie? Probably. Paul Thomas Anderson? I think I... Or Josh Brolin. uh, Well, I think I laugh harder at Punch Drunk Love, but man, I feel like I giggle throughout in your advice. I mean, Boogie Nights overall probably has more comedy in it as I think about some of my favorite lines and some of the best quotes from that. But in terms of laughing out loud the hardest, yeah, I think Inherent Vice takes it. Brolin is the subject of our current film spotting poll, a solid character actor for much of his career. He is having a moment right now. He's really had a moment, though, for the past decade or so. I remember talking to him, maybe was it back in 07 or 08, sometime around that triumvirate of films that were coming out, including American Gangster and No Country Country. for Old Men. Yeah, it must have been 2007. He had three movies out at once, and all of a sudden he was just back on the scene in a major way and really delivering some wonderful performances. Now he's out as the voice of Thanos in Infinity War. He is also Cable in the upcoming Deadpool 2, which opens this weekend, and he also has coming out here in a little bit, Sicario 2, Day of the Soldado. A couple weeks back then, we asked you, what is your favorite Josh Brolin performance, and we excluded Llewellyn Moss in No Country for Old Men, understanding how much our audience loves, rightfully so, the Coen brothers and No Country for Old Men, rightfully so, and that performance and character, we figured it would be a fairly easy win. We left it out. 
we gave you these options. Eddie Mannix, the studio fixer in another Coen Brothers movie, Hail Caesar. Matt Graver in Denis Villeneuve's Sicario. Bigfoot Bjornsson there in Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. Or Dan White, the San Francisco City supervisor who assassinated Harvey Milk in Gus Van Zandt's Milk biopic. It was Brolin's only Oscar nomination to date. Or other, you could, of course, have chosen Brand, The Goonies, or W in Oliver Stone's film. Josh, how did it come out? Well, despite it snagging him an Oscar nomination, his performance as Dan White came in last place with 8% of the vote. Closely following that was Other with 9%. I totally forgot he was in W till I just saw this really? in the poll. Yep. Eddie Mannix was in the middle here with 23% of the vote. That's from Hail Caesar. In second place, Matt Graver from Sicario, which means Bigfoot Bjornsson does win with 34% of the vote. We heard from John in L.A. My vote goes to Bjornsson. To wonderfully comedic effect, Roland displays Bigfoot's frustration at the realization that playing by the rules and trying to live up to the ideals of the American character doesn't bring him respect and happiness. And in the end, it's Roland's performance that poetically conveys what we all want in life, which is more pancakes, moto penukeku. Of course, Taylor Cole in Chicago adds, Hail Caesar, no question. In a movie full of broad supporting players, Brolin is the glue that holds this thing together, guiding it to its rightful position as the best movie of 2016. Hey, Taylor, there's another one. On board with Not you. Not just me. Stewart in Bondurant, Iowa. I just went through Bondurant, Iowa a couple days ago. Apparently not enough people saw the Coen Brothers remake of True Grit since it didn't make your list, but it should have. Whereas in the original, Tom Chaney, played by Robert Duvall, is your basic Western mean hombre. Brolin's take on the character is much more complex, funny, scary, weird, pathetic. It's a completely different take on a Western villain and unique not only among Brolin's standout performances, but I would argue in the Western genre as a whole. Is there a pizza ranch in Bondurant? Bondurant, I don't think, is quite big enough for a Ooh, pizza ranch, but I guarantee yet, huh? there is one nearby. It's actually very hard for me, Josh, when I go back to my hometown in Iowa. I was there for a graduation party. My niece Katie graduated from high school and... I pull off the road, and it's right there. I mean, it's right there. There's a yeah. pizza ranch right Calling off the exit. And not only that, I grew up only about three minutes from that exit, but the pizza ranch wasn't there. So a, young, just came a young Adam Kempenauer couldn't have had a summer job no, at the pizza ranch. couldn't have had a summer job, couldn't have enjoyed the buffet at the pizza ranch. It didn't come until later. Josh Rollin, though, really is one of the best actors working today. Great interview with him, too, on Mark Maron's podcast recently. WTF had him on last week. Just an interesting, at times intimidating presence, but he also really does open up and tells some great stories, talks about his approach to acting and the Coen brothers working with them. So good stuff if you are a Josh Brolin fan there. That brings us to the subject of our new poll question, actors taking over iconic roles. This was a top five idea we were kicking around for next week's review of Solo, Alden Ehrenreich, also in Hail Caesar with Josh Brolin. Some big shoes to fill as the new Han Solo, Donald Glover as Lando, Billy D. Williams, Calrissian. It turns out we are going to skip that top five. I'm sure we will get to it on a future show, but you're going to hear that Paul Schrader conversation instead. But our PA, Andy Mitchell, did some really good research on the topic. We've decided to at least turn it into a poll question for now. That question, which actor did the best job taking over an iconic role? And we're pretty much sticking with contemporary options here. We're going to avoid roles that have been played by multiple actors. So think about Bond, Batman, or Robin Hood, those types. Here's what we've got for you. 
Michael Fassbender as Magneto in X-Men First Class. Of course, that was originated by Sir Ian McKellen, who we'll be talking about in a little bit, I'm sure, with our top five. How about Tom Hardy as Mad Max in Mad Max Fury Road, taking over from Mel Gibson? Anne Hathaway playing Selena Kyle, Catwoman in The Dark Knight Rises. Previously in that role was Michelle Pfeiffer, of course, in Burton's Batman Returns. But, you know, Eartha Kitt and Julie Newmar and Lee Merriweather also played Catwoman, as did Halle Berry. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, I suppose Adam? we have to mention James Halle McAvoy Berry. is another option here as Professor X in X-Men First Class, taking over from Patrick Stewart. How about Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Star Wars prequels, taking over from Sir Alec Guinness. Chris Pine as Captain Kirk in J.J. Abrams' Star Trek reboot. Of course, William Shatner making that role iconic. And sticking with Star Trek, we had to include Zachary Quinto as well. Leonard Nimoy establishing that role of Spock. Those Mm -hmm. are your options. Quite a few of them. Yeah. And you weighed in with a couple of potential candidates for this list. And I know your ruse. I know it was really just all about finding another excuse to rip on William Shatner as Captain Kirk. I assume you're going to go with Chris Pine here. And the sad part is, even though I disagree with you on the greatness of William Shatner as Captain James Tiberius Kirk, you agree That's with the right answer. The I think Chris yeah. Pine's the right answer here. Well, and, you know, just because Shatner was awful doesn't mean that Pine had an easy job in a way that made the job more difficult. So you got to vote Pine. Okay. As you usually should when it comes to the Chris's. We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. We will acknowledge, notably absent from the list, Heath Ledger's Joker in the Dark Knight, the rare case maybe of an actor not just matching an earlier iconic performance, but possibly exceeding it. We're thinking of Jack Nicholson in Tim Burton's Batman as the key predecessor. Though we'll give a shout out to Cesar Romero in 1966's Batman, the movie and the TV series. I also think we want to make these polls more interesting, tighter races. And you feel like that would have been you a think clear Ledger winner. probably would have run away with it? Yeah, I think I probably would have gone with him over Pine, too. Yeah. So. Again, vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment in the poll, we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. It's back to Middle Earth after the break as we share our top five Lord of the Rings moments. Stay with us. Ian McKellen's Gandalf trying to stop a bill for moving ahead in the Senate or something, I'm sure. C-SPAN's ratings would skyrocket (laughs) if it worked like that. We said that Tolkien was getting at some political material, and clearly there it is. But we picked that scene as an obvious one to transition into our top five Lord of the Rings scenes because it was very evident to me that that's one of those moments from this trilogy that has transcended the trilogy, and it has entered the realm of memes. It has entered the culture as a whole because my 
kids, my son Quinn, who's 10, almost 11, my son Holden, who's 16, watching this movie with me. When that moment was approaching, they knew it was coming, even though they had never seen The Fellowship of the Ring. They knew the exact line. They said it in unison with them, just like they knew the moment when Boromir, before they settle on The Fellowship, says, one does not just walk into Mordor. They knew that because it's so prevalent as a meme. It's probably, wouldn't you say, the most famous single line? Yeah. Other than maybe one of the Smeagol Gollum moments from this franchise? I would say so. I, man, I kind of feel sorry for kids these days to have those moments ruined, ruined. for them. They, they can't just live in it, experience it for the first time. Yeah. Did you consider? Do I sound old enough yet? Yes, you do. Okay, Did you good. consider that moment? Oh, the, of course. The taking down of the Balrog? Look, man, I How am did I so do? impressed. I am so impressed. Um, yeah, it, it, it could be the number one it's maybe not the most nuanced moment but it's kind of the most awesome yeah it's dramatic and intense and it is the moment where we finally realize that gandalf is kind of a badass yeah. and we didn't really know that up until right that moment yeah it's great okay so an honorable mention for, for both sure. of us yeah. okay but not among our top five maybe we were just trying to be a little less obvious with our picks how did you approach it josh it Did you just go with really, awesome? I, I no, I didn't. I I kind of just went with on this viewing what stood out to me. So this list could change if, as I know some listeners do, I make it a habit of this being an annual thing. I wasn't able to fit them in with my kids; just scheduling didn't work out. So they still haven't seen them. I'm also kind of adamant about them reading the books first. So maybe I'll make it an annual thing, and next year I might have a different top five, right? But on this viewing, these are the five that really stood out. I didn't try to go obscure, but the list kind of starts with an obscure moment. Hit us. Okay. Comes from The Return of the King, and it's Denethor flinging himself to his death. <laughs> you know how you said there were no bad performances in this trilogy? Oh, and really? I overall agree really? with you. You think this is skirting the line it, of camp? It's, it's, yeah. It, that Everything about Denethor is just coming right up to that line. I don't know if it completely crossed it, but there maybe were some scenes and moments missing from this edition. If it wasn't clear by now, we didn't do the extended we did not. editions. And I have, have of course, heard, never seen those. You haven't. I, no, either, I haven't right? either. But I have heard from people on social media who are asking that, that this storyline yeah. does get fleshed out more. Yeah, I, I felt that. Okay. Yeah, you can feel it a little bit. I, I agree. And the performance John is Noble, big. we should say, is the actor here. It is a big performance, but this moment... I think really works. He's just a little context. He's the caretaker or the guardian, you could say, the of this. The steward. The steward. Thank you. Of the throne. Thank you for correcting me, Adam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look at I'm what's, here look for at you. how far we've come. I'm an expert. You're correcting on me on Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Oh, I love it. This is the mountain city of Minas Tirith. Where the, is that right, Adam? Minas, Minas Tirith, Tirith. Yeah, close okay. enough. Where the grand battle of Return of the King takes place. Denethor, he's kind of grown comfortable in this steward position of power. He refuses to acknowledge the concerns of the outside world. Until now, at this point, it's too late. War's arrived at his door. It's even taken the life of one of his sons. So he's distraught, he's hopeless, and he jumps to his death from the top parapet of this really amazingly envisioned walled city. Yeah, this does feel a little bit like a side story. Um, but for me, even the small sampling we get works because it's very much in keeping with the central theme again of this film, power corrupting to the point of self-annihilation. And here, you know, the ring isn't even at play, at least obviously in these scenes, but still Denethor is suffering from that same sickness. I also like this, and it's a little removed from the performance, so maybe why it stands out for me. 
The moment of his death itself is an example of Jackson's masterful control of logistics. And we always have a sense of the scope or the scale mm-hmm. of the action in this movie, no matter how big things get. So this is taking place in the midst of that grand battle. I didn't time it how long from its start to its finish. But when we see Denethor's leap, and here he's dramatically on fire because it's it's from the funeral pyre that he's tried to set for his son. He leaps. It's an extreme long shot. We see him. The camera sweeps back to take in not only his personal tragedy, but in the same shot, this larger tragedy that's unfolding on the battlefield below. And really throughout the Lord of the Rings films, Jackson employs this sweeping camera without a cut to do this. So he's he's both building out and containing and connecting this immensely imagined world. And I think you know, in the fantasy films and maybe some of the superhero films we've seen since, mm-hmm. that's really an impressive feat, the way he's able to do that. Yeah, I actually have a couple picks here on my list that incorporate, now that I think about it, that sweeping camera and the way it connects to the larger scope of the scene. Now, I did the same thing you did. I jotted down the scenes that stood out to me on this viewing. It just so happens that with two of these films, it was the first viewing. Right. And it's been so long since I've seen The Fellowship of the Ring in theaters back in 2001 that I felt like I was watching it, honestly, for the first time. There was so much of it I didn't remember. But what I love about that is that I'm coming to this list completely fresh. I really didn't, maybe other than the You Shall Not Pass scene or some of the Smeagol lines, the Gollum moments, which we've even done here on Massacre Theater, as I recall. Yes, we have. Those are the famous moments, but beyond those in this nine-and-a-half-hour trilogy, I had no preconceived notions. I really had no baggage as far as having any sense of what the best scenes are from this trilogy. I also did... As I went through that list and I jotted down all the ones that just occurred to me, either in the moment or reflecting on the film as soon as it was over, I did consider, Josh, how I wanted my picks to illustrate something I appreciated about the series as a whole, or it illustrated, depicted something that was fundamental to the series as a whole. With that in mind, my number five is also from The Return of the King, though probably a more obvious moment than yours. It's Legolas slaying the Oliphant. Oh, yeah. It's an honorable mention. This is the counter, it sounds like, even for you then, to your theory mentioned during the review of any scene where a character is riding an animal. Yeah. Because we do get some of that here. The are a little dodgy here, I'll say. probably better than the tree stuff in The Two Towers. (laughs) And it doesn't matter because everything about the scene is so good. And the element or elements that were at play in this scene for me that tie into the whole series— I did feel like, how can you talk about the Lord of the Rings without having something from a battle scene, right? So much of the trilogy is battle scenes. And another element is the word I've already used in relation to Gandalf, badassery. (laughs) You know, there are so many badass characters here. Aragorn is, I think, at the top of that. He'd be the one character I'd most like to imagine myself as, the one character I would least want to mess with if he was a real-life character. Yeah, I think that's fair. But Legolas... (laughs) Orlando Bloom is right up there. I think it's a great performance. It's essentially a swashbuckling, silent movie performance. There's not a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of physicality, a lot of grace. He's all about action. That's what we see. And he, as a character, is someone who's just all about taking action. He responds immediately to any distress, and he does whatever he can in that moment. It usually, obviously, involves doing something with his bow and arrow. And he's not foolish or naive, but he is resolved 
to fight. He just seems to understand what's at stake in any situation. And it's as much fun watching him, honestly, Josh, for me, just step into a shot next to Aragorn, surveying a battle scene with those eyes flaming with intensity as it is anything else. Well, almost anything else, because this scene with the Oliphant outweighs all others for me. And this does take place in the battle. You discussed the Battle of Pelennor Fields. He sees this giant creature that does look like a gigantic elephant, and it has some of the bad guys riding atop it, and they're shooting their arrows. And he decides just to single-handedly take one of them down. He swoops up onto the leg, and then the body of this enormous creature. He takes out all the riders and then brings it down. The special effects here, while maybe not up to the snuff we would expect from a film being made today, I think overall are pretty seamless. Maybe it's because it's a quicker scene. And we do get that great moment. I don't know if it's computer-generated or not. I'm sure it is. I don't care. It's thrilling. Where he finally takes all the bad guys off they all fall to the ground and he stands atop the creature and the camera swoops around him in this single shot from behind to then a close-up in front that just puts you right there as if you were on top of this oliphant with him and then it all culminates with that three arrow shot to the back of the head of the oliphant and he slides down the trunk honestly as elegantly as Fred Astaire sliding into the coach with Sid Charisse in the bandwagon. It has that kind of elegance to it. And the fact that it feels as real as it does when you know that there were no creatures remotely like that on the set when he slid down the trunk and jumped off is a triumph. And it does have that added character and comedic touch, even if it may not work for some overall, of him still counting his kills. The fact that he is still competing with Gimli, even while he's doing this absurd feat of bravery and skill is just another element, I think, to the scene, another layer that makes it work. Yeah, I, the performance as a combination of Fred Astaire and Douglas Fairbanks, I, that's yep. good. I like yeah. that a lot. Uh, it really does capture what Bloom brings to this role. And yeah, I think you can see the CGI at work, but you're right. The audaciousness of what's being depicted yeah. just carries you through that anyway, I think. And it also gets to, you know, one of the questions I had about the effects in general is there's a lot of computer-generated background landscape, and you can tell it, but I think it's not as damning as it might be in other films because of the topography that's also on display, the New Zealand settings, the location scouting that's been done, and also how the camera sweeps through those landscapes mm -hmm. in a way that, because we see those so often and they're so real, my experience was I retained some of that so that even when I see a scene that I know is a CGI background, I hold the two together in my head and they kind of blend okay. in a way that I found was a little more convincing yeah. than in some other films. No, that makes but, sense. But yeah, that, that's a great scene. Okay, I'm going to move from my number four to a very, very small one. It's from The Fellowship of the Ring. And here's where we're going to get to start talking a little bit more about Gandalf. This is Ian McKellen closing his eyes after Frodo volunteers to carry the ring. Comes fairly early on. This is yeah. when the Council of Elves, Dwarves, and Men are, are trying to decide what to do with the One Ring now that it's been found. So they're arguing over whether to use its power, maybe take it to Mount Doom is the only place it can be destroyed, of course. And then this is when Elijah Wood's Frodo, the unlikeliest candidate, volunteers to do it. I will take the ring to Mordor.
I do not know the way. I will help you bear this burden, Frodo Baggins. As long as it is yours to bear. What you can't hear there is the touch McKellen gives to that moment and Jackson's decision to shoot this in extreme close-up, his slow closing of his eyes in response to Frodo's offer. Yeah. Think about how many spells, not literal spells, but just spells on us, the audience, that McKellen casts with his eyes throughout this series. Well, here he casts one simply by sorrowfully closing them, just communicating that Frodo here has sealed his own fate. Right. He feels complicit in Mm -hmm. that. And all those things going on in this little two-second moment. I really think McKellen, from the start, sets the tone for this series by letting us know and letting the other actors in the scenes know he's going to take it seriously. Okay. He's he's not going to wink at us at all. He's not going to look for those moments where he can, you know, nudge it into camp. He's going to take this entirely seriously. The rest of the cast will too. And then we will as well. So he's just, he's the linchpin to this whole thing in a lot of ways for me. I'm really glad you got Gandalf in here because I don't think I did somehow. As great of a character and as great of a performance. Well, then let's let's spend a minute or two on what made him work for you. And do you you think it's the best? See, I would would say Bernard Hill is below him for performances for me. And he's just like at the top of the pyramid. He gets a ton of screen time, so maybe it's not fair. But again, in terms of those things I'm talking about, bringing this this sense of belief in the material. That's it. I mean, it's it's the conviction. It's conviction. the gravitas. Yeah. It's everything that McKellen brings. And the movie is filled with great actors, like the one I'm going to get to here in my number four, delivering that type of performance with a similar amount of conviction. But there is something about just maybe the larger-than-life quality to Gandalf and the needs to Gandalf and the demand on him that this movie places, the trust that Frodo has in him, and then we as viewers were were always turning to him to be that guide, to be that yeah. kind of father figure. And he does have to do a lot in terms of being not only the wise old sage, but also be a warrior. And he's also someone you can count on for some lighter moments, some great comedic touches Mm -hmm. as well, especially in his dealing with The Hobbit. So yeah, McKellen is wonderful. I'm really glad he's here on your list. I said that there would be a pick in my top five that encapsulated the horror aspect of the film, the ring and the way it's coveted and how that's depicted, and also the great acting that's on display in this film. And for me, It also comes from the Fellowship of the Ring, and it's the scene where Frodo meets Bilbo again at Rivendell. You know, I I totally forgot that this scene was in the movie until rewatching them, and it's it's a really good one. Bilbo gives Frodo his sword and the mithril, his shirt that is going to help protect him. And in unbuttoning his shirt to put it on, Frodo exposes the ring around his neck, and Bilbo sees it. And... The look of joy and tenderness on Ian Holmes' face, he becomes so sentimental and boyish that it's touching at first, and then it's unnatural. There's something really dark going on there, and as Frodo buttons the shirt, it provokes a very nasty reaction from Bilbo. Oh. My my old ring. Oh. I very much like to hold it again one last time. Ah! 
You can Google it, and it's just called the Bilbo Jump Scare, and for good reason. It really did take me out of my seat for a moment. It caught me completely (laughs) off guard, and I've touched on some of the different things at play here for me. We know the power the ring has at this point in the first movie. We've seen the flashbacks. We've seen how reluctant Bilbo was to give it up. We've seen how some men during that fellowship scene react to it. We know, but I don't think we really understand the maniacal demonic hold it can have on someone until we see that moment, until we see Frodo not let Bilbo hold that ring one last time. And it's also the moment where Frodo, I think, fully understands the maniacal demonic hold because he's seen someone he loves and reveres, someone who has been away from that ring for a little span of time now, and yet he that quickly upon seeing it, reverts to that desire and how completely he reverts to that desire. He becomes, for a moment, truly a monster. That is something out of a horror movie. And I think it's another example of the special effects being really good here in the movie. There's no cut when Holm snarls and lunges. His eyes are black and bulging. He just transforms instantly. And of course, you can recognize in the moment a little bit of a CGI aspect to it, but it's still really, really effective. And this movie, as we've said, is full of great acting from great actors, performers who imbue what could be a lot of silliness with real weight and gravitas. And that's what we see here from Ian Holm. His recoil, his shame. We even get Anthony Hopkins, I think, calls it the psychological gesture. It's kind of an old acting trick, but it doesn't seem like a gimmick when great actors utilize it. We see it in one of my favorite scenes with Hopkins in The Remains of the Day when he turns away from Emma Thompson. The way Bilbo Holm just turns his head slightly and touches his hand to his temple. And in that moment, the lighting, too, reflects the fracture within him. His face is half in dark, half in light, just like his psyche. And we realize there that he really will never, in some way, not be split in two. It will always be part of him, as it will be for Frodo. And I think that's the moment where Frodo fully realizes it as well. And to stick with the Frodo connection, you see shades of Holmes' performance in Woods by the time we get to the Return of the King, um, where he's now been carrying this burden for so long. And he snaps at Sam in a yeah, similar way. Yeah, he snaps and, too. And there, there's a malevolence that begins to word. drip into Elijah Wood's performance too. All right, I'm finally getting to one of the meme-worthy moments here with my number three pick. And it's, I am no man from The Return of the King. Ah. This is the one I thought you might have. You mentioned Miranda Otto's Eowyn, the princess of Rohan who she's been barred from the battlefield, even though she's trained in horse riding and swordplay. We see in the Two Towers, I believe. Here in The Return of the King, she sneaks into this climactic battle at Pelennor Fields. This is at Minas Tirith. And she comes face to face with one of the Nazgul, here riding a flying dragon. After she beheads the beast, she goes after its rider. You fool. No man can kill. Okay, of course, this is an irresistible moment of female empowerment, almost shameless, but I think, you know, for 2003, maybe advanced and sophisticated. 
But really, here's that word again. It's awesome. just a badass, <laughs> it's badass. awesome totally. action moment. And I love the effects work of how the rider crumples in on himself after being stabbed. This is another good example, I think, too, of why the battle scenes here work throughout the series as long and protracted as they are. And again, I wanted to pay attention to this because I've been one who complains about overwhelming, exhausting battle scenes yeah. in recent films. When you look at these, though, often they're broken into mini-dramas, yes. like this little sequence. They each have their own climax and denouement. Really, it's it's not one long bludgeoning slog, but a series of action short stories that are definitely strung together. Yes, and I agree with you overall that that is a strength of the movie. If I'm being totally honest, though, you there still is grew still— weary? I grew a little bit weary mainly because—and this is where the— unimaginative side in me comes through the literal side in me comes through a little bit too much so many of those sequences where they're so horribly outnumbered and the hordes start attacking and he cuts away just when you think they would have been totally overrun in this moment how are our heroes surviving all this the moment you start to question that stuff i did start to question it anyway that's when he finds a way to cut away to another one of those stories that's true yeah or some new force comes riding to the rescue, which is, I will say, watching them in this close of succession, you start to recognize a pattern to some of these scenes that I can see might grow thin for some viewers. My number three comes from The Two Towers, and I think it's a moment kind of akin to the one you described with your number four with Gandalf and just the closing of his eyes. It's a gesture. It's a character moment that the movie doesn't need, and yet adds so much to the scene and to the film overall, though this character I'm going with is one who is so incidental overall to this trilogy. The character is Wormtongue, portrayed by Brad Dorif, and it's Wormtongue's tear when he is up in the tower with Saruman after he's been kicked out of Rohan. I'll get into the scene, but Brad Dorff, the actor, heartbreaking as Billy Bibbit in Cuckoo's Nest. I think of him, too, as Deputy Pell in Mississippi Burning, getting manhandled in a barber's chair by Gene Hackman. But really, he's he's one of the all-time screen slitherers, yeah. which is who I, he is here. Sniveling is, is yes, what I was thinking. Sniveling. And there isn't overall much depth to his character. He is what his name implies, warm yeah. tongue. He is sinister. He's sniveling. He's corrupt. He's the devil on the shoulder of Theoden, who at this point is possessed, who has been corrupted himself. I would argue this is maybe the biggest performance in the series, more than than Denethor, actually. I, it still works for me, but, yeah. but he's going—you pretty much know everything. <laughs> no, you, you do. You need to know the minute you see him. You do, but for me, I wasn't expecting, I guess, subtlety from that character. And I think he really is, Dorf, a talented actor. And we get in this moment, as he's been— Expelled from Rohan, he runs to Saruman. We see what we already suspected, that he is closely allied with him. And he explains to Saruman where Theoden and his people will surely go to Helm's Deep. He reveals a secret weakness to the structure that does come into play later, but he's skeptical about how this will all play out. If the wall is breached, Helm's Deep will fall. Even if it is breached, it would take a number beyond reckoning. Thousands to storm the keep. Tens of thousands. But, my lord, there is no such force. A new power is rising. Its victory is at hand! 
as we then see Saruman give his speech to the Urukai, that army down below, and we do get that sweeping shot where the camera shows them in relation to that army. It's a shot straight out of Triumph of the Will, honestly, where we see how spread out they are. The camera then cuts to this pullback shot that goes through the mass of soldiers. It's seemingly endless. And as Saruman urges them to war, Jackson cuts to this short close-up of Dorif in shock, astounded at what he's seeing, and a single tear falls. And there's a lot of ambiguity in this moment for me. Is he shedding a tear at the gloriousness of the sight? This is surely what in a way he's always dreamed of or wanted, or is he shedding a tear at what he's wrought? The destruction, an unimaginable destructive force that is about to befall what is, I can only imagine, his home, right? Despite what he may have been doing to try to sabotage everything there, he wants to rule that land. So what is he feeling inside in that moment? What about the fact that we are surely clued into his feelings for Eowyn and He has to imagine that some tragedy will befall her in all of this. So is the tear one of those things, a couple of them, a combination of all three that Jackson allows for that ambiguity, I think is really striking. My understanding is it's a scene, it's a moment that isn't in the book and really that he thought to include it at all. It so easily could have been one of those moments where he's just the evil sidekick next to Saruman and the scene ends with a sick little smile on his face as he surveys all the soldiers, but This movie is, the series is filled with those kind of little character moments amidst all the spectacle that you really do kind of have to be on your toes, but they're there and they're really rewarding if you do catch them. The moment also is, of course, the core conflict of this entire film. Every decent man or creature is seduced and fractured by the ring. Bilbo, Boromir, Gollum, we could go on and on. That tear, in a way, is potentially the Smeagol side of warm tongue that's still coming through. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it's, a, it's a nice moment. And I, I think for me, I like how it underlines the shock and awe of the shot. Yeah. Because we do get a lot of these sweeping camera movements over vast armies, and that could grow tiresome or thin. But Jackson finds ways to anchor them or personalize yes. them. And yes. that's here is one way of doing it here. All right. My number two is a scene, a moment so good that, yes, Indeed, we have done it for Massacre Theater before. (laughs) Gollum arguing with himself in the two towers. You know, Andy Serkis and the team of animators and technicians who who supported him really delivered what I think is the first true CGI performance here in the two towers. It was astonishing at its time, certainly still holds up for me. And it's not only due to Circus's acting. There are little animated details. The one I noticed watching it this time is the sequence where the stringy tendrils of, of Gollum's hair, they're blowing, animated to blow in the same direction as some grass, the like physical production designed grass that's in the background in one scene that's just putting these two things in the same space, right? How often do we say that when we're watching CGI characters. We didn't believe they were in the same space together. Here you absolutely do. Gollum's showcase moment is the one where Smeagol, this is the normal soul who existed before the ring, and Gollum, the decrepit creature he becomes, argue over whether or not to help Sam and Frodo on their journey to destroy the ring or to betray them. We wants it. We needs it. Must have the pressure. 
They stole it from us. Sneaky little orbitses. Wicked, tricksy, false. No, no. Master? Yes, precious. False. They will cheat you, hurt you, lie. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Jackson and editor Michael Horton deserve some of the credit here as well, I think, because they capture and they accelerate that split nature of Gollum's personality by beginning, they start by swinging the camera from one side of his face to the other as he switches voices. Mm-hmm. And then it progresses. Suddenly we get these sharp edits. Yeah, it's that a shot, cut. reverse shot. Yeah. yeah, but exactly, between both sides of him and just the way the, the intensity of that scene ramps up. So Gollum is, you know, if, if McKellen gives the best performance, this might be the most enthralling character in the series in some ways. And this is his best scene. Yeah, I'm with you if you're not like Samwise, who's just constantly waiting to wring his neck, which is also a palpable feeling I sure. think any viewer probably has or yeah. should have. Yeah, well, you're, you're repulsed by him, you right? Are. Yeah. Yeah. My number two comes from Return of the King, another pick here from that film. And I really wanted to go with the scene. This was an obvious one for me, but I knew that it fit into my overall approach here with this list because I had to have something that reflected the grandeur and the spectacle of the location and the way Jackson uses this New Zealand shooting location beyond the battle scenes and that grandeur and spectacle, just the hills, Mm -hmm. the mountains, the trees, the rivers, the lakes, everything we see on display here. And for me, the best use of that is the lighting of the beacons in Return of the King. This is when Minas Tirith is under attack. Denethor is implored by Gandalf to prepare for battle, to put out the call for support. He refuses. Gandalf acts anyway. And you've got Pippin, the constant failure, the constant disappointment to Gandalf, who finally does not disappoint. They've hatched a plan. We're not sure what it is yet. Then we see him go to the tower and light successfully this beacon. We then see Gandalf looking in the distance with him in the foreground as another beacon lights up. And the combination of the score, the 360 aerial shots of the beacons being lit one after another, it really underscores one of the key themes of this movie, this idea of brotherhood, of these factions coming together for a common struggle. The camera swoops down from the one we're seeing in the distance to another that's being lit closer in the frame. So they're unified in the same space by the camera, by the movement, the unbroken take. And then as it swings around again, so that we get a different angle of the one in the foreground, we get another one really far off on a mountaintop across a pool of clouds, and it lights up. And just the fact that you can talk about a pool of clouds, I don't care if they're CGI-enhanced or not, it feels real, and it's glorious. Jackson unites the flames just as the flames ultimately unite the men. Even that far off in the distance, they'll come together. And I think that distance is really crucial to the impact of the scene. It's also moving just because it's this unification we've kind of all been hoping for since fellowship that we know is so essential. It's the only thing that is going to give them hope if the men come together to help each other. And I use the word glorious. I've never been to New Zealand. Is it that glorious? If it is, we should all be going there tomorrow. And I will note that it does end 
with the light still visible, the flame still visible in the frame, but with that darkness encroaching, which is just another visual touch that tells us, okay, there's some hope, but they've got an uphill battle here. Yeah, that sequence is also another good example of the handling of of logistics here. And we've already seen, we've gotten a hint of a map, right? It may have even been in Fellowship, where we get a sense of all these lands and where they lie on the map. And I like how that comes back in one of the many endings of Return of the King. Mm -hmm. But what this does is it gives us a sense of an actual place that's expansive, but we understand the boundaries that's being threatened, okay? So yeah. so it's not, you know, the universe that needs to be saved. It's a very specific set of kingdoms mm-hmm. bounded by certain mountain ranges. Yes. We know, we've been to some of them, we've heard them referenced, and in that swooping shot, we kind of see it all. Yeah, we, we, we don't do. feel we don't feel like lost or no. now where's that place or what's this? It's all of a piece because of this firm handling of, of something like logistics. Yeah. Okay, my number one is they are coming from the Fellowship of the Ring. This is that long moment of suspense and buildup in the minds of Moria where Gandalf reads from that book that's been left behind by the dwarves who were slaughtered there. So the band, the fellowship comes and all they find are skeletons in this tomb. And he picks up this book to to find out what happens. As wonderful as the sustained action set piece that follows really from the attack of the cave troll to the confrontation with the Balrog, as wonderful as that is, I even appreciate more the patience and the care with which it's set up in this scene. They have taken the bridge and the second hall. We have barred the gates, but cannot hold them for long. The ground shakes. Drums, drums in the deep. We cannot get out. A shadow moves in the dark. We cannot get out. So this is, of course, also where Pippin knocks the skeleton into the well, makes all sorts of clatter. And then after that awful pause of silence, we hear those drums that Gandalf was just reading about. And I think this goes back to my idea of Lord of the Rings stimulating the imagination more than the intellect. It's perhaps the best example because it still lets us do some of the imaginative work, right? Gandalf's reading, then those suspenseful pauses... Then the sound effects, all that time when all that is happening, we're imagining the worst. Then Jackson shows it to us, and miraculously, it lives up to even what we could have envisioned. So ending my list at the beginning, back with the Fellowship of the Ring, they are coming. Great pick. My number one Lord of the Rings scene is the one, Josh, that I feared. I told you before we sat down to tape this segment that I thought we might have one overlapping scene. Is it it? And in fact, we do. My number one is Eowyn meeting the witch king. That's the one I thought, yeah. Yeah. Her line, I am no man. And maybe it's because the sharp features and the pale face of Miranda Otto are just so enchanting. Or maybe it's because, let's face it, women are mostly on the outside of this series. The Fellowship consists of nine males. 
it occurred to me that if I wanted to be mostly inaccurate, I suppose, but snarky and dismissive, I could say thinking about Liv Tyler's Arwen and Blanchett's Galadriel, you could consider them literal manic pixie dream girls. I was, <laughs> I was wondering if we were going to get into Liv Tyler. They're, they're fan- well, I really like her performance, too. They're, so do I. Yeah, I was yeah, surprised She's by fantastic. That. They're fantasy women, though, who play key roles in the story, but in the service of Frodo and Aragorn and the rest of the crew achieving their goals. Now, I said that was somewhat inaccurate anyway. In fairness, certainly with Arwen and Eowyn, we absolutely get a full sense of their wants and desires sure. and their inner conflict. So and Arwen are, gets a great action scene of her does. own, the one I picked as a horse riding scene. Yeah, they, they have great moments. And as I said, I think they are fully developed characters, even if they get a lot less screen time ultimately than some others. But when she removes the helmet that's covering her face and she lets her hair flow and she delivers what is the single biggest cheer line I would think, in the entire series as she defeats the Witch King. The moment speaks for itself. As you said, total badassery, but it's also my favorite scene that underscores something so central to the series. It's the moment when opportunity and identity converge. A destiny fulfilled. Will she be relegated to secondary status, or will she be a warrior, or if not a warrior, a leader? And she's also doing what every character in this movie has to do at some point, and Frodo is doing every point that he carries the ring. She's overcoming fear. We hear, I think it's in the Two Towers, where she has that moment with Aragorn. She says what her fear is. Her fear is a cage, to stay behind bars until youth and old age accept them and all chance of valor has gone beyond recall or desire. Aragorn is pretty sure, as he says to her, that that won't be her fate. I think we're pretty sure, too, based on Aragorn's confidence, based on what we've seen from her already. But this battle, that opportunity, is where I think she becomes sure. And that is what's so powerful about it beyond just how awesome it is. She does. But you mentioning fear reminds me that another thing I really like about this scene is how trembling she is during. Yes. I I meant to say that because it is a badass moment, but it's not badass in the way Aragorn fearlessly takes on all comers. She is trembling. She is terrified in that moment. She overcomes that fear. And it really truly is my favorite moment in the entire trilogy. We would love to hear your picks. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Do we have any other honorable mentions we oh, want to throw man. out I, you know i think we've actually touched on or referenced so many. everything i considered one throwaway touch that always just makes me giggle is and here i'm going to need your help because you're now the expert that orc commander the tall guy yeah he's white he's got like half of his face oh, is all yeah. lumpy i love the moment again this is on pelinar fields the battle there where the boulder comes yeah. hurtling his yeah. way and he just steps aside. he steps aside at the last moment and then spits on it <laughs> Great touch. Another little touch. Character touch. Yeah. yeah. Boromir's sacrifice is probably a popular one and deservedly so. I think as well, Lurtz is his name, the orc character. That's not me. that one. You tell me. That Aragorn takes down. The first scene where we get to really watch him be as dominant as he can be as a warrior, slicing his head off. Gandalf lifting the siege in the two towers. Of course, the Rohirrim charge is a great moment. And Denethor... <laughs> His eating habits <laughs> yeah. are pretty terrible in what Return is of the going King. On there? But I love the vulgarity of that moment against the beauty, juxtaposed with the beauty of Pippin's song. And I do think that's overall a pretty touching, effective moment. We mentioned this during the review, but the quiet pints back in the Shire at the very end also really stood out for me. Yeah, wonderful touch. 
Those are, again, our top five Lord of the Rings moments. Please send your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. Filmspotting.net is also where you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Also on the website, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking who took over an iconic role and did the best job. Obi-Wan, Spock, Catwoman, Magneto, Mad Max, they are all among your options. Also, if you want more Magneto, check out the next picture show. They're considering X2 in light of Avengers Infinity War. And, of course, we also have Film Spotting SVU in the Film Spotting family of podcasts. You can find both of those in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release, opening in Chicago this weekend is a movie that some have recommended to us as a potential golden brick candidate, yes. Josh? Beast. Beast. It looked good at the Chicago Critics Film Festival, and I really tried to fit this in in time for a potential review, but just... Hasn't happened yet. I got trampled by Lord of the Rings. A troubled woman living in an isolated community finds herself pulled between the control of her oppressive family and the allure of a secretive outsider suspected of murder. Pope Francis, a man of his word. This is the new documentary from the great director, Vim Vendors. Excited to see that. And The Seagull, an adaptation of the Chekhov play starring Saoirse Ronan along with Elizabeth Moss and Annette Benning in wide release book club Josh have you seen the trailer for book club have not okay four lifelong friends have their lives forever changed after reading 50 shades of gray and their monthly book club Diane Keaton Jane Fonda and Candace Bergen star and show dogs with Will Arnett Helen Cumming and Stanley Tucci that's probably all we need to say about that one for now Deadpool 2 also the big movie opening this looks like a good gun to your head week Adam you have to choose one. Okay. Is it Book Club, Show Dogs, or Deadpool 2? Okay, well, that's, Have you seen Deadpool? Yeah, that's easy for me because oh. I do want to see Deadpool 2. I love Josh Brolin. I think Ryan Reynolds is really good as okay, Deadpool. Okay, let's, let's pretend Deadpool 2 isn't but coming out. But Book Club out. or Show Dogs? Yeah. I mean, Book Club. Okay. No doubt. With that cast? Absolutely. What about you? Um, a macho police dog. That's all you need to hear about show dogs to know dog that is you ordered watch to go it. undercover as a primped show dog in a prestigious dog show. So it's that okay, Sandra so I, Bullock movie where she goes undercover. Oh yeah, I saw that. What are those called? I saw that. They made a sequel. Well, here's my question before I make but with this dogs. important decision: Are these like live action dogs who who talk like humans, or is this animated with we've, with this cast? We've already spent too much time. Well, how am I going to pick? Unless I know that. If it's real dogs, I'm going show dogs. Really? If it's animated, I'm going book club. <laughs> Next week of the show, we will discuss Solo, a Star Wars story, and play our interview with legendary screenwriter and director Paul Schrader. His new movie, First Reformed, is coming out. Who made demand that we yank the interview after hearing <laughs> what we were just talking about? You bite. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach a couple of new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. It's an all Lord of the Rings extravaganza. Oh, God. I told Sam to switch this, and I didn't think about the fact that now I had to say this.
come on. Go for it. Sam, you didn't do this right. It's it's phonetic. It's it, I mean, it's just easy. I'm not doing all yeah. that. I'm not doing all that. Other, you got to do it all or it'll be an incomplete sentence. Oh, my God. Ready? Okay. Yes. But do your whole part again and, and say, I, I just, I, I prefer a sacred cow consideration. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.